Welcome to the Oxford Sidebar Podcast for December 2013 from the Oxfordshire branch of the British Science Association. Our speaker this month is Dr. Andrew Wilkinson, who spoke to us on the facts and fiction of forensic science. We hope you enjoy. Now, if I can get the science bit to work, I gather we've got a fairly wide and varied audience, so I'm very happy to take questions as we go along or as things uh, start. Uh, I've been given a fairly wide brief, uh, really in terms of uh, forensics. Um, now, I think most people will have seen CSI and Silence Witness. Any takers? Yeah, yeah, I thought so. Yeah. Well, I guarantee there are, some, there are some similarities, but there are a lot of big differences, and we never get the results in practice by the end of the next commercial break. So that's, that's the one thing we'll get sorted out. So... I'm a general practitioner by training, and uh, Oxford born and bred, uh, but uh, came into this, as so many people do, into uh, the forensic aspect of training in their own particular speciality, their own profession, and then uh, becoming involved in the legal side of it, the forensic. Because when you talk about forensic, it goes way back to Roman and Greek times when, it, when there weren't courts, but things were decided in the forum. And uh, therefore, for all forum forensics. But the history of investigations, primarily of deaths, goes way, way back. Um, uh, there are, in some of the really early uh, Chinese uh, documents, going back 2,000 years BC, there are references. Uh, there are references in the hieroglyphics uh, in Egypt. And uh, so it goes on and on through the centuries uh, to what, what has happened. But really, it's been in the last 20, 30 years that we've seen dramatic changes with things like DNA technology. But all the basic principles are very much the same of forensic investigation. And um, a lot of it was really well put down by a Frenchman about 150, 200 years ago, uh, uh, Locard. Uh, who had his own laboratory when laboratories were very new. Uh, and he had this idea of a triangle. Uh, you had, uh, in this case, the assailant, the victim, and the location. And what you had to do was to tie all the three up. And that principle underlies a lot of the investigations that we see nowadays. So Locard's principles are still very, very important. And underlie all, a lot of the investigations that are going on. Primarily, uh, these involve crime and the police. But I will perhaps talk a little bit later on about uh, things like paternity and everything else like this which comes in, into this. So, well, how, how did I get involved in this? I was a, West, a GP out in West Oxfordshire and um, uh, I'd done my statutory about three lectures on forensics when I was a medical student, that was my, the limit of my experience. Well, it came about through a very good uh, practice, um, a nurse who was working in the local schools who saw a child with bruising and uh, was worried about these, whether they were accidental or non-accidental, and called me in. And we had a look at it and decided that this was, and uh, sent the child off to hospital where all the tests were done and 
social services and police became involved and it indeed was a non-accidental injury. Well, as a way with everything, rarity, if you deal with, in any speciality, if you deal with one case, you become the local expert, two cases, the area expert, and three, you've got the county. So, so it was with me. And um, so I was called in for a couple more cases, and by the end of the year, I found that I'd volunteered, you know, just the use of the word, uh, for the Child Protection Committee for the area. And uh, then the local police said, oh, can you come along and see detainees in the police station? After a bit of cajoling, I did that as long as they could find me a course to go on. Because quite a number of the people who were detained were in fact my patients. So I knew them all already. Now whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know, but it meant they didn't get away with very much. <laughs> um, and it went on from there. And I became interested in law and went on to get a, a, a law degree and um, forensic qualifications and uh, now I do this uh, on an international basis, uh, uh, particularly on the academic side, because uh, where I've been, uh, I spent half my time in the Republic of Ireland running p professional training in forensics uh, there. So uh, it, it, it's grown and grown and grown. And, but it does an example of uh, how people do come into this area. Some of the obvious ones are obviously into medicine, uh, but into all the different ranges of sciences. Uh, you were telling me you were doing uh, pharm uh, pharmacology, and that pharmacology and uh, toxicology is a very, very big area of investigation but the people in it normally start off doing the work that you're sort of doing and then for some reason or other become interested or get involved in doing that um, photographers uh, quite the, the police photographers are incredibly well qualified and really good photographers because there are some things which are very very difficult to photograph things like bruises and things like this so that they uh, do courses and qualify in that area. In fact, they've got a very good centre uh, uh, run by Durham Constabulary on behalf of uh, all, most of the police forces in the UK. And they have a scientific centre there for teaching people who are involved in crime investigation. Would you believe the name of the village where the, the centre is based is called Crook? So they, have, uh, the train, they train the crime scene investigators. Um, you'll see their little white vans around, forensic investigation on the side. And uh, uh, there's a good controversy going between the detectives and the uh, forensic investigators about who, who solved the most crimes. And I think that the investigators are leading. Um, so it, it becomes very interesting. The range of cases that uh, have forensic aspects is, is, is really vast. Uh, my work really involves mostly uh, the care of people who are detained in police custody and the victims of crime. Now, when you think of uh, people detained, yes, it's people who've committed various crimes, uh, maybe anything from shoplifting to murder, or anything else like this. Uh, but uh, when people are detained, they have rights. 
And um, the rights to medical care is one of very important ones of this. And a lot of this is very much like general practice. Uh, except for one example, one big difference is that uh, they can't come to you in surgery, you've got to do a home visit. So uh, I tend to go and see people in uh, uh, police stations and try and sort out problems in relation to their medication. Uh, not all of them tell me the truth, uh, which is amazing because uh, I, when I started, always think, well, you know, they'll tell me what's wrong just as they went to see me in general practice. But for some reason, they seem to lose the idea that I'm here for their benefit. And uh, they keep on telling me uh, uh, that their middle name is Walls, like the Porky Pies. Uh, so um, uh, it just become a little bit interesting there. Uh, but we get people who, you know, there are the mad, there are the bad, and there are the sad. Uh, the bad ones, well, yeah, uh, I'm glad they're there. Uh, but we uh, do see a lot of people who are brought to police stations for a place to, as a place of safety. It may be that they're just very drunk and they need to be able to sleep it off. But um, very often we see an awful lot of people who are mentally ill. And uh, whether they've fallen through the net of the services or developed something acutely, um, psychiatry and therefore forensic psychiatry becomes a large part of the job. Um, I rarely do I get situations of going out to sieges, but they do occur, or we get people trying to jump off uh, multi-storey car parks or off road bridges. Um, but uh, often I tend to see these and do uh, assessments of what sort of care they need when they actually get to uh, to the uh, police stations. Uh, you know, some of them are fairly obvious. Uh, one of my very first cases was a a young man who was found in a local school uh, uh, play area waving a machete. Um, the, the police decided very soon that uh, uh, he was uh, distinctly uh, mad and uh, took him to a place of safety where we then escorted him off to the ward for not long afterwards. Another area um, is in relation to the examinations of victims of crime. Now, yes, I do deal with child sexual abuse, rape cases and things like this, but most of the victims of crime, um, it's a matter of um, you know, somebody who's been mugged or um, uh, somebody who's had a domestic situation at home and somebody's got some injuries and my role there is as an independent doctor uh, to make notes about their injuries to give evidence in court. Um, uh, so, which brings in the other side of it, which is the actual law. Uh, we need to know quite a lot about the law and how to give evidence uh, in court. Increasingly, the courts come into every uh, phase of life, but how many people here have actually given evidence as a witness in court. That's quite unusual. <laughs> There's usually somebody in the audience. And the numbers are increasing. One of the courses which I really enjoy running is for ambulance paramedics. Uh, for, their, for the paramedics advanced uh, diplomas, 
they have an aspect of, of uh, law and regulation in there, which I often teach. And ten years ago, when I gave this sort of lecture, I would ask this same sort of question, and there would be one hand going up. Now, better than two-thirds do, because uh, they're, they're called in to give evidence about things. But most people who've been to court as a witness uh, find it uh, really to be quite frightening. It's a different world. And our criminal and civil courts are adversarial in that uh, it's like, rather like the judge having, being there as the referee and the two sides playing. And uh, uh, each side has got, and the lawyers have got to make the case for and against uh, the, uh, the, the prosecution or the defence or the complainant or the defendant, whether it's uh, criminal or civil. So that evidence, uh, so that uh, somebody going into court uh, as a witness will first be asked for their evidence in chief by the side which has called them to tell them what happened. And the other side will be cross-questioning them to try and pick up on the differences or put a different uh, slant on things. And then there's, of course, the third chance of the first, the first side having to uh, go back to try and correct all the things which have gone wrong for them. But uh, that is a different area. And one of the things I do a lot now is actually training professionals, particularly doctors, to actually what's it like to be in court and how to give evidence. Because, sure, we all think of what is important in court is the evidence that you give. But uh, the judge, the jury, will have to weigh up your evidence compared with somebody, ev somebody else's evidence and see what they think really did happen. What, what weight should we put on this doctor about this part of the evidence compared with that part of the evidence? You know, do we think more of him or him? You know, is that more reliable than that? And go, so, so it's weighed up. So how you give your evidence is absolutely vital. Um, and there are some very, very common pitfalls for people, um, which people can be led into very easily. Um, the commonest is going beyond your area of expertise. Uh, you know, being asked a question about this and about this and about this and a bit further. So if you were describing a, a, a road traffic collision which occurred on the zebra crossing out here, uh, you know, it's, it's fair enough to be talking about you seeing the red heart car and the green car hit each other. But if, you then, if the barrister then takes you on to, well, what do you think if this and if that and if the other, well, by that time we're on beyond, well beyond the bypass. So um, you have to be, the things you have to be careful about on that so score. Your lawyer protecting you. Well, as a, as a witness, you don't have a lawyer. Well, your side, if you like. Well, they will try and object. Uh, very often, the, the case is that you know, uh, the, the lawyer will ask, well, that's a reasonable, will, will argue that that's a reasonable question. Because what is important, and this is particularly important in criminal cases, I don't know whether we have any lawyers here at all. <laughs> um, uh, is that uh, in criminal cases, uh, the balance of proof is beyond reasonable doubt. The prosecution has got to prove that uh, the accused did the crime beyond reasonable doubt. You know, nobody's ever defined 
what it is. It's more than 50%. It's probably less than 100%, but it's somewhere in the middle. But it's, it's a much higher degree than in the civil courts when it's damages. So if you're being prosecuted uh, for uh, speeding, exceeding the speed limit down St. Clements, that's criminal. And they've got to prove it beyond reasonable doubt. If it resulted in a car accident and somebody was claiming off your insurance for a whiplash injury, then it's the civil case, which is on the balance of probabilities, 50-50. So if you can prove it 51%, you're there. Um, so, you know, th these are the sorts of questions that will be um, asked of you in court. Uh, so these are some, some of the various as aspects uh, you know, of where we are. Uh, so that's an outline of my work. Um, at the moment, I'm doing really from 12 to 36 hours a week doing that in Oxfordshire for the Thames Valley Police. And there's no way of knowing quite what is going to happen uh, any Monday morning, in my case. But um, the, the, the charging stations, which I'm likely to go to, are Oxford, uh, in St. Aldate's, uh, Abingdon, or Banbury. So, or off, so I'm often stuck in the traffic between all three of them. And uh, then uh, uh, going out to the scenes of crime is, is, is a smaller amount of the work. Uh, yes, I do get dressed up in those horrible white bunny suits, with a hood over here and um, slippy shoes on. It, it's all very part, necessary part of the investigation. The big, big change has been in the DNA technology. Because it was only in about 1957, 58 uh, that uh, DNA, DNA technology came in. And uh, uh, that, uh, what is very interesting is uh, that in the first case it was used in court, it was, uh, it actually disproved the case against the accused. Uh, so, uh, um, the thing about uh, the... Yes. Yes, yes, yeah. And then they, they, they got somebody else later for it, but uh, it, was, it was intriguing. And that there's been a tremendous development in, in the whole field. Um, the time that taken to do the test has gone way, way down, and the sensitivity has gone way, way up. And as with all these tests, it does have its problems as well as its uh, advantages. And they're now uh, getting to the stage that they can get DNA profiles on 11 skin cells. So if I lean on the bar here and don't do a, a trick and fall down there, but if I leave my hand leaning on the bar here for more than about 10 seconds, I will leave a trace of my DNA enough to be picked up on a swab. The problem comes, how many other people have been leaning against this bar? And their DNA could be picked up. So cross-contamination of evidence becomes an increasingly major problem. So in the... Uh, cases of uh, sexual assault and rape, we now have specialized centers uh, where we do the examinations uh, for Thames Valley Police. 
There's one in Milton Keynes and one in Slough. And uh, so victims of assault are brought to these uh, specialised centres, which have all the facilities there. But the ex actual examination rooms are cleaner than operating theatres. And uh, w you know, we, we uh, dress appropriately uh, to do, be able to do this. So uh, they take, really take, they take swabs from, although we cover the couches with special sterile uh, and protein-free uh, covers, uh, they actually take swabs of the couches regularly to prove that there's no cross-contamination. Because again, you've got to prove these things beyond reasonable doubt. And uh, uh, that you have to have this chain of evidence, which is where CSI comes in. So you know, you've got to be able to document your specimens all the way to the laboratory. It's rather similar to a postcard um, that you I go and post, a, post the post box down there. It disappears into the wherever, goes to Swindon and various other places and comes back up the road to, about three weeks later to drop into my friend's front box. Whereas if I go down to the post office and send it uh, special delivery, it's signed, it's, I get a receipt for it, it's signed for all the way down the line and get a signature at the other end. So we can prove it all the way down the line, uh, which gives us quite a lot of paperwork and fells a few forests, but it's, it's vitally necessary in the present, in the present day. So uh, that's a little bit about uh, the sort of things I do, how I got to be doing it here. Now, any questions? Some questions? Um, when you talk about being able to detect 11 skin cells or whatever yes. it was, um, do you also, are you able to distinguish not only that it's the DNA of that person, but they were skin cells or spit or blood or semen or whatever? Do you know what it is? You well, you can't tell where the DNA came from in those situations necessarily. We've got DNA from gear knobs on cars. We did a, an identification of a, a woman's body was found. Uh, there was doubt about her, her identity. And it's very important for all sorts of reasons what, to find out who she was. Uh, but they ended up with a number of different leads. To cut a rather long story, an interesting story short, uh, they found that this lady had had a cervical smear done. The with obviously the various consents and everything else, they were able to get the actual slide uh, which still existed from her cervical smear and there were enough cells on that slide to be able to get a DNA profile which then linked that name to that person. So it can be all sorts of different uh, sources uh, that it can be. Uh, but they are able to multiply up uh, the, the fragments of protein to such an extent that they can do it from really very small amounts. The longest case that I've, my own particular cases, has been from saliva, which has been on somebody's skin for 48 hours. And this was a case some years ago uh, in Swindon. I've nothing against Swindon except possibly the magic roundabout. Uh, but a lot of the unusual cases that I have have come from Swindon. So, but um, yes, certainly uh, uh, saliva on the, on the skin, on a victim's skin, uh, 48 hours after the event, we were lucky enough to be able to get 
uh, enough pro foreign protein to get a DNA uh, profile. And we were extremely lucky, because this was all, uh, an attempted rape, um, that uh, the uh, DNA linked up to somebody who was on the national database. Uh, so they, they then had a name, found him in uh, Northamptonshire somewhere. Uh, they arrested him, and at interview, he actually confessed not only to this assault, but uh, to armed robberies as well. That was a particularly interesting case, but we got more than we actually asked for. Can you explain the process of DNA profiling right from the beginning when you collect the Right, oh, um, yes. <laughs> Uh, I have a PowerPoint lecture which lasts an hour and a half on the subject, <coughs> but, but uh, it basically um, we take, uh, for most uh, uh, things, we take uh, a, a swab, the same similar, uh, similar sort of swab to the throat swab your doctor would take from, uh, from a sore throat, basically cotton wool on the end of a stick. And we normally take a wet and a dry, so we wet one, a wet swab, which we'd uh, swab with uh, sterile water and uh, um, distilled water. And then we would roll this swab on the skin, put it into its container, and then we would take a dry swab and do the same thing. Because sometimes you'll get more on one way than the other. These are labelled and then put into tamper-proof bags, which are then labelled, and I would then sign off and pass to, in this case, a police officer or investigator, um, and they would make their way to the forensic science laboratories, where they would take the uh, swab and uh, they would uh, extract protein from the, the, the swab. These will be microscopic nanos, nanograms, or even with a lucky milligram quantities, uh, which they then split into the various. Pardon? How do they extract the protein? Uh, using uh, using various solvents, they, they split the DNA into the various sections, and they can then multiply these and then sort them by a form of chromatography um, into the va various. Uh, bits, um, which they can then uh, sequence. Uh, so they will have a series of sequences of chunks of DNA, and then they've got to sort them. Um, uh, because the, the, in the DNA, it's, it's miles and miles long if you, if you were able to unravel it, and there are some bits which are com pretty constant uh, in their structure. They're, they're, nucleic acid structure and there are some which are very variable um, in their structure and uh, their makeup and it's there, these are the sections which they're looking at so they will uh, take these from a number of different places different loci um, in the DNA um, to compare so that they will, they will come, be able to come up in the end with they say the, they can't say that this is X person. They can say this is not X person because you know we've done this and there's no match at all. That's easy. You can say no match. But um, if there is a match, then um, all you can say is the likelihood of it being anybody else. 
and it's got refined enough so they can say that it's a one in a billion chance that it's not him or her. Now, sure, that means there's possibly one in India and one in, uh, uh, one in uh, China and one in the rest of the world, possibly. But, you know, again, it's on the balance of probability. So that, uh, you've got to be careful about things like identical twins and that sort of situation. But um, in general, uh, you can say that uh, there's, you know, it's got beyond a billion now. Um, that there's you know, less than one in a billion chance to this anybody else which is pretty good pointer. Uh, as with all evidence, I'd never, I would never be happy with a conviction which lies on just one piece of evidence. I think you, know, you really must have far more evidence uh, to support a claim, particularly in the criminal court, um, that, that, that these sort of things have gone on. Mm. So, as forensic science gets more advanced, it yeah. gets more expensive. So, do you think there's a problem that the, I, mean, I don't know about how the law operates, but is there a problem that the defence may not have the same access to forensic evidence or do they have equal access? Well, it's evidence. There's no property in evidence. Evidence and witness evidence uh, can be used in the arguments of either side. Well, it's a question of whether you have all the evidence or part of it. The situation does vary from country to country, but it comes into the area of disclosure. Or the, in this country, the, in a criminal case, the prosecution um, may, have to, may have to disclose all evidence that they have. You know, the pocket notebooks of all the police officers, the correspondence in relation to uh, investigations, everything is disclosable. But they have all the in this country, definitely. No, no. The, it's it's very much like the states where they have yeah. discovered. Yes. They, 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 both, both sides, uh, they, they, they somehow discover evidence. And, and, yeah. And it's a non disclosure there. Yes, yeah. But, I mean, I, I, I want to ask a question. I mean, along with that uh, point, which is, uh, any, I mean, there are students from at least 150 countries yeah. here, um, and probably people from other countries that are not students as yeah. well. Um, when, when, you, when you have a case with a, I don't know, foreign national, I suppose, yeah. and, and are there um, international standards for evidence, for uh, uh, um, uh, biological material collection, bio uh, analysis? There, there are um, international, in, in international standards, um, but what is determined really by the court the, 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 the sitting there. Uh, yes, um, broadly, uh, the DNA technology can be interpreted in different countries. Similarly, so um, if you know, we had some American uh, DNA uh, profile we, uh, no, provided to us uh, in relation to somebody uh, in, in, uh, being possibly investigated in the UK. Um, it could be probably used in court. However, it, I think any prosecution worth their while, uh, you know, would would expect that it has been repeated. You know, mistakes can, you know, however careful, you know, the whole system is human, and I think the the uh, uh, defence would be wise to ask that that is, test is repeated, because I do a lot of expert work, 
and I do it approximately equally for prosecution and defence. So if I was given a load of papers uh, by the defence lawyers and some, I picked out that there were areas which were open to uh, doubt or, or there might be further information, I would alert them to the fact because basically in court, if I'm in court as an expert witness, the only time I'm really happy is when both sides are going at me hammer and tongs. Because I know if both sides are trying to demolish me, I'm probably pretty independent and impartial. <laughs> and it's so hard to say that, but uh, it doesn't necessarily always feel like that, but that is vitally important. feel about the um, destruction of the DNA database in this country, where we can only keep DNA evidence, or we can't, on, on innocent people, but only on people... Well, we can at the moment. They do. Anybody who is, who, who is arrested for can have their DNA taken, even if the, the charge is never made and everything is dropped in about 15 minutes. They're, they're, you know, I think that is wrong. My personal view is that it, was, it is fair to keep the DNA of anybody who's been convicted of a crime. I think that is fair. But um, to, uh, and there's no reason why you shouldn't have a, your, your, your DNA on a d d database voluntarily. Mine is on voluntarily for exclusion purposes. Uh, and it can't be used for prosecution. So if, they, if, if, they, if the police thought I'd done something naughty and uh, you know, they wanted to take my DNA, they'd have to do it from scratch rather than go to the other database because they wouldn't have access to it. But uh, my, it's my own view that uh, 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 you know, the, uh, the arguments for the database only hold really for people who've been uh, convicted of crimes. But... <laughs> yeah, sorry. But also, surely, like, if you don't... Surely, like, also, if you don't have anything to hide, like, there's no reason that you shouldn't want to be on a database to help the searching. In the UK, especially, like, I mean, I wouldn't, per I mean, I can understand why people think, uh, I study forensic science, so, like, I understand yeah. the sort of ethical dilemma yeah. of keeping the um, in a database. But yeah. personally, I wouldn't mind because I've got nothing to hide. Like, I've never, you know, I've come across anything that I've done that would lead me to it if it helps their search. So if yeah. they had everyone in the UK's DNA, you'd be able to. Well, let's assume the rest of the system is absolutely perfect, foolproof and safe. And even our beloved police force are not, uh, are not um, completely uh, incorruptible. And, and you might want to change your mind in the future. Yeah. Like, uh, like, you might want to do things that are not necessarily legal. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but then maybe some people would consider not doing things if they knew that their DNA was on a database. All right. I don't know, there is that aspect. Yeah, and, uh, you know, that's, uh, th there could be, uh, dare I say, a bent cop who wants to frame somebody. You know, who just uh, swaps things around? Yeah. I think that's a problem because the yeah. police are judged by the extent to which they secure a conviction rather than the extent to which they solve a crime. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
So I would be very wary. DNA can't be the single source of evidence. No. Mm. Some of the crime, so no. All right, that's, 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 that is very much a personal view. Very much a personal view. But it should uh, be maybe a more systemic view rather than a personal view. Well, I agree, yes. <laughs> I would, wouldn't I? <laughs> DNA, one is whether you look at mitochondrial DNA as well as um, mm. the DNA. Does that happen? Yes, well, it. it Technically, slightly different, but the theory is basically just the same. It's RNA protein rather than DNA protein. But um, it's technically more difficult. Uh, but the time it's used is particularly when you've got bones and old bones. And they can be quite difficult to actually get DNA from, but it is possible. Oh, yes. And the other thing that me was, I mean, I remember a case when it was said you know, the chances of having uh, two cot deaths in the same family was just the chance of a cot death multiplied by... Ah, that comes into statistics, like, yeah. And, and it, it yeah. concerns me that you're yeah. saying, oh, the chance of this DNA is one in a billion. And I'm thinking, well, you know, have they really worked out whether there's any... That's the Meadows case. That's the, the Meadows case. Cases? Yes. I mean, is it, how reliable is that one in a billion? Well, yes. That didn't really rely on DNA. That, that was all about the, the, the statistics of cot deaths. Indeed, but what I'm saying is that the reason that that statistic was false yes. was because it made, it presumed that cot deaths do not run in families, which is yeah. false. Yes. So, but similarly, if you take, I don't know, 100 bases and say that well, it's this pattern, the chance of being that is one in four, and the chance of being that is one in four. But if there's a chance, if, the, if there's something that those two base combinations yeah. are likely to occur to together, yeah. then that one in a billion is going to go through the window, isn't it? Yes. Uh, you know, again, this, this should be worked out because um, all sorts of things, there are loads in the, in the journals. Uh, loads of papers which are looking at the uh, combinations of various uh, profiles within different populations. So, uh, and obviously, the smaller the uh, racial group, uh, the fewer the number of possible alternatives. Or some some alternatives become far more common than in other groups. So, do you mean you can tell what the race of the Sometimes, very rarely, you can, yeah. uh, because uh, there's been so much over mingling over the centuries yeah. that it becomes difficult. But uh, you can say that there are more of a certain combination in, in some groups than others. But you know, it, 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 of course, there's a lot of arguments about statistics, and. Uh, Again, you, the, the, the classic one is, is the identical twin, uh, or, or, or sometimes close relatives. Um, so, so far you have been talking about forensic genetics, where you're using uh, DNA as a fingerprint uh, for yes. identification. But do you foresee a future, uh, I mean, behavioral genetics textbooks over the last 30 years have just gotten thicker and thicker and thicker. Yeah. So do you see a future where you can use DNA uh, for not just fingerprint analysis, but phenotypic analysis? So you could 
you, you would actually test the DNA to make your case for uh, an action that the that the uh, that the, the defendant or whoever would have performed or could have performed the probabilities of, of uh, uh, incredibly hitting. interesting, incredibly complex, and it comes back to this old argument of nature and nurture. And how much, you know, how much can we determine about people from their DNA, their genetic origins? <laughs> the more you look into it, the more variations there are. Um, you know, there are, uh, you know, in, in relation to certain, you know, uh, certain genetic diseases, the, the problem will come with insurance companies people taking out life insurance policies um, and having DNA tests uh, uh, you know, for, uh, for the presence of uh, genes or, of particular genetic diseases and whether they should, that should be done, whether that should be taken into consideration in uh, uh, the premiums to be charged. That's a big ethical issue there. So, as the, as the as the apparent probability of a error or a coincidental match goes ever higher, yeah, seems to, and as the ability to work with smaller and smaller samples increases, yeah. If I wanted to commit a crime to get away with it, I knew my friend here was on the DNA database. Yeah. <laughs> I would just contaminate the sample with her DNA, and then if you tell me there's a 15 billion chance to one that it wasn't her who did it, are there any documented cases where people, where criminals have actually fabricated the evidence in order to build the case? I've, I've only got, uh, I can't think of any major one, but on a, a minor case, yes. Um, before smoking was banned in various places, um, the exercise yards in police stations was where people went out for a smoke, whether they were staff or uh, detainees. And uh, so in a police station not 100 miles from here, um, this indeed happened. And one well-known local villain uh, thought, hmm, I've watched CSI and everything else like this, and he picked up a load of cigarette ends, uh, which other uh, nefarious people had dropped in the yard, and put them in his pocket, and then went off to uh, you know, rob another post office or you know, burgle somewhere, and he actually did uh, post, uh, rob the post office and made his escape across the yard at the back leaving a few cigarette ends there, <laughs> which were, were not his, thinking, ah, oh, PC Plod will pick these up, and PC Plod will come and do the necessary. They did. But what was unfortunate for him uh, was that by chance, the villains who had indeed dropped the cigarette ends had actually been nicked for something else and were in prison at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so it's... Uh, alibi lost out of the window so he got a knock on his door <laughs> yes <laughs> so um, 
No, he didn't. <laughs> so, um, uh, it's a good, it's a good, good theory, but this, this thing about cross-contamination certainly is a, a significant issue. How much, of, how much of your time would you basically split between being in the field and actually being lab-based? I'm, I, 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 do I, do I do not do any lab work. Okay. No. I hand this all over to forensic scientists or such. But someone who was, say, someone who sat in the forensic science, there's no kind of carryover. There isn't, uh, this is part of the kind of CSI. <laughs> yeah, yes. No, I, I, no, it, yeah. Does, does that yeah. actually happen? Or is it like no, it doesn't happen at all. Again, this cross-contamination of evidence is, is the key factor to this. So that um, if you've, uh, for example, a week ago I was involved in the investigation of start part of a, of a case of suspected rape. Um, the victim was, uh, they, they sent a police officer out to see the victim who took the victim uh, to a police <laughs> station uh, and then on to the victim's support suite. And um, so that officer, would then, until all forensics had been done, would have nothing to do with the scene, of the, the scene of the crime or the alleged assailant. So the, the, that, the, the victim will be taken by a police officer in a different police car to a different location. And then the investigating officers at the scene would not be involved at all with either the victim or the assailant. The assailant, if arrested, and in this case was, um, was taken by, arrested by different officers who took them in a different vehicle to a different centre, who was seen and examined by a different doctor. So, you know, the, they were kept completely separate. So this idea, as in CSI, of uh, the pathologist who deals only with dead people anyway, um, coming in and, uh, and uh, doing the uh, uh, actual inquiry and taking the statements, it just doesn't work that way nowadays. So that, that doesn't work in CSI. I've got a question. Recently there was a discovery, I think it was in China, of two people sharing the same fingerprints. Um, do, what does that mean for, like, Fingerprint, fingerprinting. If we're starting to see people now with, with, with similar, this has effects. always been. There's always been a chance yeah. of uh, of. They're not absolutely well, of course, unique. Because it depends also on the what they call the number of points. Number of points of similarity. Yeah, yeah. And if you obviously, if you get the normal sort of 19 points, whatever it is, uh, of similarity, then uh, with two people, then you go and look for more points of similarity. And there comes a point, you know, which you can't get any more. Surely, like, as, the, as there's more people in the world, it's going to become a little bit, like, a little bit less, like, reliable source of evidence. Yes, it's, you know, you, 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 you know, yes, there will be a stated chance of, uh, uh, you know, what are the chances of being somewhere else? There always will be a chance. And so from, like, from that, when this becomes, like, a less reliable thing, well, apart from, obviously, your DNA, do you think there's something that will, that is or will be developed that will become a new way of identifying a person? Or do you think that DNA really is the sort of... There, of there, there will be other, other ways, uh, undoubtedly. Um, uh, but um, we're all different. 
and because we're all different, we're, and we've got similarities, um, there's always going to be, it's never going to be absolute. Yeah. It's, 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 it's you know, how positively you want to be certain about it. Certain, the only thing about certainty is you're not certain. Yeah. <laughs> really, when it comes down to it. So if there are no more questions, yeah. please join me to thank Dr. Wilkinson for this very interesting talk. Pleasure. Right. Thank you. Thank you again, Dr. Wilkinson, for joining us today. So we talked about forensic science. That's cool. And I just wanted, for example, as a story, what has been one of the most challenging or interesting stories which you have been involved in as a forensic scientist? Well... I think the first thing to say is that I'm not a forensic, although I've got a science degree, I'm not a forensic scientist. Uh, how I came into this was as a doctor. Uh, I was a general practitioner and I was asked to undertake work uh, initially in relation to uh, child abuse and then for work for the police and then qualifications in forensic medicine and in law before doing the work that I do as a forensic medical examiner, primarily for the police forces. So has there been any sort of cases or instances where you've been asked as a sort of doctor to give a report, which has been sort of challenging in terms of the work you had to do, or you found you weren't? Um, there, are ver there are tremendous variations and uh, tremendous challenges. Um, the work with victims of crime is probably the most important. Uh, you have two main responsibilities as a doctor to somebody who is the victim of crime. Firstly, it's the doctor. Uh, you're there as somebody who's been through a very traumatic, possibly very traumatic episode, and they may be injured in various ways. So it's a, it's a matter of dealing with the purely physical injuries, but also dealing with the psychological, psychological with their problems. Um, a very holistic approach. You're there for the person to try and help them in what could be one of the most uh, traumatic episodes in their life. And try and help them through that and, uh, and onwards. But uh, with that also is the forensic responsibility uh, to help in the investigation of the crime and give evidence uh, in court if required. And there can be ethical uh, differences between those because there can be situations in which uh, the best interests of the patient are also the best interests, interests of justice. But sometimes they're not and this is a thing which you have to discuss with your patient right at the word go but uh, you might be required to give evidence in court about anything which the patient has told you in that consultation which is very different from the situation that uh, you deal with when you see a patient in your own surgery normally. I suppose that raises a lot of ethical issues as well. So, for example, how do you deal with patient confidentiality and those sort of problems? In a sort yes, of they, are, they are very important. And the most important thing is to discuss them with your patient right from the word go so that they can make an informed decision. Okay. 
so that if they decide that there's something that they don't want to talk to you about, they know not to talk about it. Or if they may not, they may say that I don't want you to say anything about such and such. Okay. Um, so you've got to discuss this through with them, make sure that they're informed about what they consent to and what they don't consent to. Okay. So are you always limited within the boundary of the consent? I mean, if it's for the sake of the greater sort of justice procedure, are you allowed to? Yes. Um, again, there are guidelines uh, about this from the medical council, general medical council, and other such things. And what you should do in the situation in which you feel your responsibility to society exceeds that to the individual patient, you should inform them of the situation. So also we spoke about DNA profiling as yeah. part of the talk. Are there any other techniques which they use as part of forensic examination to gather evidence? Uh, yes, the, 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 the most important um, is just the basic observation and record keeping. Okay. Uh, making a careful examination of your patient, noting every mark, bruise, cut and uh, keeping clear, very clear, precise records of this so you can give an accurate report of not only what injuries there were, but where there were not injuries, which you don't know at the time, but in the possible court case may be equally important. Uh, this can be, uh, take quite a long time and care, but it's very important. Sure. And I suppose the final question, I mean, advances in technology have probably aided forensic science a great deal. Do you see any other major breakthroughs in the future which could help with the sort of forensic examinations? As uh, the whole area of knowledge about uh, genetics and yeah. molecular genetics increases, so there must be other developments further down the line. DNA technology wasn't was a side to investigations uh, by Sir Jeffries. Okay, great. Thank you for your time, Dr. Wilkinson. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Details of our upcoming events can be found at our website, www.oxfordcybar.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Oxford Cybar and on Facebook, British Science Association Oxfordshire Branch.